Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? Well, now I really believe this. Well, you better go now, Dave. Before the clowns take over, huh? And when you get back from saving the world, I want a full written report so I can give it to the chief when he gets back on Monday. <laughs> I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Did you miss me? I guess not! Two. One. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Inside uh, uh, Movies Go Lore, another exciting episode into what, what are we going to call this month are we going to call this hell month so we got to go through hell to get to heaven hey yeah, yeah. <laughs> right it's, technically it's ken's birthday uh week <laughs> yes we'll tell apart <laughs> so, um, ladies and gentlemen, we, uh, um, uh, Kim, uh, uh, Septim Sims, wife, 
uh, has a birthday somewhere around here. Uh, when is it? Tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, oh yeah. crap. <laughs> so, uh, happy belated, uh, happy early birthday uh, to you. Uh, and uh, so tonight we are discussing two of her favorite films. And the first of which is uh, filmed in 1987 um, and directed by Clive Barker, written by Clive Barker, and the screenplay is written by Clive Barker as well. And uh, based on his short story. <laughs> based on his short story. The technical uh, novella. But... The Hellbound uh, Heart. If I remember correctly, The Hellbound Heart. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the, the basic gist of this is, uh, is the fact that uh, it, it's about an unfaithful wife who ends up bringing back her lover into the mix of her fa family and what the family ends up dealing uh, with this. And uh, there's a puzzle box that's involved with this film. So uh, before we uh, get too far into the plot details, why don't we go with a first-time impression of this film from Kim herself? So, uh, Kim, tell us uh, about the first time that you had been subjected to this film. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great way to put it. <laughs> did, did you uh, did you open up the box? Did you? I always. I remember, like, I was I was really young. I was under the age of 10 before the first time I saw the first movie. Um, as some of you know, I, my brothers are much, much older than I am. Like, they were teenagers when I was born. So, and my mom, despite being a fundy, she allowed me to watch horror movies a lot. And this is one of the movies that we watched together. As long as I couldn't, as long as I didn't watch any of the sexy stuff, which, of course, Hellraiser is all... <laughs> Sex. <laughs> it's all sexually tinged. So I didn't really watch this with her a lot. I watched it with my brothers, though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's scared, it scared the crap out of me because this whole idea of, like, you have this puzzle box. And I remember the first time I saw a Rubik's Cube, I thought it was the Lament configuration. <laughs> I was seven years old. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know what it was. I mean, because I was really big into puzzles at, the, at that age, and I just I fell for these movies somehow. I thought Pinhead was a cool villain, and then when the second movie came about, I was like, oh, even better! I love this shit. So yeah, I was pretty young the first time I saw these films. Um, I'm dating myself right now. I'm I'm very old, as you guys may know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in my thirties. I'm in my thirties. Sorry. Um, but, yeah, I've been a fan of these films since I was young, and, you know, nothing bad. I don't know, I, I hate the later sequels, except for the one with Henry Cavill. <laughs> that was the one about the board game, or the video game, sorry. Okay. I've only seen the first three. Oh, you are missing out. There's, like, there's quite a few sequels. <laughs> I was told to avoid them. Yeah, they're pretty bad, but the one with Henry Cavill, because it's Henry Cavill... And he's faking an American accent for the first time. It's pretty fun. <laughs> Superman himself. 
<laughs> so, um, who else wants to go? Uh, Septa, why don't you uh, give us your uh, testimony of defense? <laughs> well, my first time watching it was a slight bit past the time that Kim first saw it. I wasn't really into horror movies uh, until I was an adult, which is funny because I saw quite a few of them as a child, but not this one. I think if my father had tried to show me this one, my mother probably would have walked out on him at that point. <laughs> she didn't um, walk out on him when, you sh when he showed you Eddie Murphy Raw and Scarface. <laughs> but uh, this one I was always curious about because Pinhead was a rather, you know, I mean, a well known uh, horror figure. Right. And I'm not quite certain when I first saw the film all the way through. I know it was before I started <clears throat> dating Kim because I had it before that. But. I can't remember when I first uh, saw it. It was... had to be in my late 20s. Probably when I was in Emporia. But I remember seeing it and going, huh. Okay. <laughs> that might have helped, helped you. When you were in Emporia, you could have looked out your window and seen just as bad as stuff. So. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So, seriously, people in suburbia are probably doing that kind of shit. <laughs> I was, well, like I said, I was, I was numb to a lot of it by that point, so I was able to deal with it. But I think if I'd seen it just like maybe five years earlier, I probably would have been scandalized. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll admit, I, I started picking up more of um, an interest to it after getting together with Kim because she liked the films so much that I got to see them multiple times. Uh, not as much as I've seen the beginning of the second film, but uh, I have definitely, which which is pretty much the ending of the first film. Just the beginning? But, uh, oh, yeah, the recap. So, uh, eh, I, I have to say, it was okay for me. Uh, it's kind of grown on me over the years. <laughs> Okay, um, well, I was first in, uh, introduced, well, uh, about 10 years ago, I saw it for the first time. I missed it because I was born in 84 and this was born, uh, uh, out in 87, and my mom was like the, one of the most religious women around, So, uh, mm -hmm. at, at least while I was growing up, so I could see no horror films. So I think that's why I'm, uh, I've kind of grown to love horror films over the years. And uh, I thought that this film was a hell of a lot more darker than, even though um, I just recently, uh, I recently saw it a couple of weeks ago, and then I re-saw uh, them again, again today for the, uh, this. So um, uh, seeing them again, I still love that. Uh, a scene between the floorboards. It's just gets me every time right? with the fucking spider looking like arms coming out of the floor. 
That so. freaked me out when I was a kid too. That that got to me. I was telling Brandon the other night. I'm like, oh my yeah. god, that's so creepy. And the fact that it just goes just a few inches below the floor, and you see the fucking heart. Uh, heart, yeah. Body go around it, and then you start to see the brains. You're like, <laughs> it reminds me of the cockroach scene from uh, Marin Elm Street Part Four for some reason. Ew. Hmm. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that scene with the Roach Motel. Mm -hmm. oh, yep. yeah. Her arms get ripped off of them. The Roach arms come into place. Yeah. So good times. Dustin, mm -hmm. what, uh, uh, what is your involvement? Uh, when was your involvement? Well, in the first time, the first time I saw Hellraiser was when I was getting really into horror as a genre in 2012. Um, previously, my dad, my dad liked to go buy uh, movies from video stores. You know, like they would rotate out their old stock of stuff, and they would sell things off. And so he used to take me on those buying trips that he did. And I remember a big cutout of Pinhead for, I think it was Hellraiser 3, actually, uh, at one of the video stores, and being kind of weirded out by the design, but I didn't see Hellraiser for at least 20 years after that. Um, and so the first time I saw it, I was kind of, I was kind of expecting more of Pinhead, so I, was, I wasn't really sure how to process it, like it was a very different movie from anything I had ever seen before. So, I kind of didn't like it the first time I saw it, um, but it grew on me once I had a better idea of what was actually going on and, like, what it was about, which, um, I think we have, I think you gave the weirdest <laughs> synopsis of the movie I've ever heard, Dave. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's about, uh, it's about a box that can open the doorway to hell, essentially, and some guy named Frank finds the box, and he opens it. And then decides he wants out of the deal, and so he talk, and so he tricks his brother's wife into helping him be resurrected. And it gets pretty uh, graphic. Well, I was I explaining to Brandon, like when we were talking, you know, about the difference between the novella and the movie itself. The, the novella explains in much more detail as to why Frank was looking for the lament configuration in the first place. Sure. And why he, well, he changed his mind, you know, because he, you know, he was basically looking for the uh, 100 versions uh, equivalent of whatever the Cenobites were offering. So when he found the limit configuration, he solves it, and it opens up the portal of the dimension, and they're like, okay, so we're going to do this, and we got all this crap waiting for you, and he's like, yeah, sure, let's do this. And so they're like, well, it's the most pleasurable thing you're looking for. And that's what he was looking for. He was looking for the extreme pleasure. Like, I guess, you know, the equivalent of the greatest blowjob in the world. Mm. And they promised him all the stuff. However, their idea of what's pleasurable is not the same as what our idea of pleasurable is. No. So they start totally, it's like the opposite. It's so they ah, okay. Even if you're like into that sort of thing, I'm not really sure how how into it someone would be getting the skin flayed off of their body. Yeah. So they torture him to essentially to death, essentially, and he's trapped in this other dimension, which is basically hell. And you know, Frank at some point was like, "Oh no, hell no! This is not what I signed up for. I'm not here for this shit. I'm out." 
So his first opportunity when his brother's blood resurrects him at the spot where he died, you know, he's like, I'm out. <laughs> he escapes hell, essentially. This is the real story that inspired Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> well, this you is like, like Fifty Shades of Grey taken to the nth degree, you know. You, you know what's, oh, God. Funny, what's funny is, uh, 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 since, uh, <laughs> since I've been watching uh, Alfred Hitchcock f uh, films, I found out that Tippi Hedren's, Hedren's granddaughter is the, the girl who plays in Fifty Shades of Grey. Anyway, you know, fried egg titties. Melanie Griffith's mother? Yeah, Melanie Griffith's daughter. Yeah. Well, I knew in like Johnson's parentage. I'd forgotten Hedron's involvement. Yeah. She's Melanie Griffith's mother. Yeah. What about you, Dane? Uh, what is your involvement in the Hellbound Heart? Well, I um, I tried to watch this film a few years ago, and I didn't finish it for some reason. I think you, what happens with me sometimes is if I have a lot going on, or if my mood changes or whatever, I'll get partly into a movie, and then I'll want to watch something else. And it's not that I don't want to come back to it, because I do, it's just, you know, things happen. But uh, the other day, it was like maybe two days ago, I watched this in full after having gotten the uh, awesome set that I showed off in the beginning of the episode just now um, from Zabby. And uh, so I watched the first one, um, and then just watched the second one right after that, um, right after... Um, right before the episode started, rather. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I listened to, like, the first part of the novella because there was an audiobook on um, YouTube, and I need to finish the audiobook. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it was a series I've been wanting to get into, and, again, with just all the numbers of things that there are to watch, you know, sometimes... Um, takes a while to get to something, but, um, yeah, I'd always heard of the series, I just, um, I knew it would be something new to dive into that I'd have to devote some time to and all that stuff, and, um, you know, I researched Clyde Barker a little bit, and, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's a series that, or at least from having seen the first two, I'm going to dive into the other ones as soon as I can, but, um, you know, it's a series that it seems like there's a very interesting mix of several things. You know, you've got, um, well, obviously you've got S&M, you've got uh, certain um, hidden things that happen in a very specific kind of 80s um, suburbia, which is all about, well, excess, but also that which people hide from their neighbors, and um so you've got that, you've got the idea of, well, in pleasure being intermingled, but even more than that, the idea of um, going to hell basically as like the ultimate thrill, almost like a, like a drug addiction or a you know, thrill seeker's dream, you know, and, and all of that uh, with conventional religion, like conventional Christianity, kind of being cast aside, but, like, I love the bit in the beginning where you see all of the, I think, Catholic, uh, specifically, the Christian iconography that is outside 
uh, just seeming so irrelevant and so uh, kind of meaningless in this particular milieu, which is very hedonistic. Um, and then, uh, you know, then what's on the inside of this otherwise beautiful house? It's like a wreck. You know, it's it's basically like a crack bed on the uh, crack bed on the inside. And it, uh, you know, I, I think that that in and of itself kind of sums up the themes of the film very readily. You know, that it's this beautiful house that really is like the fact that the husband is like, yeah, we can move in here. I'm like, this thing is like, I, I think that like, even a condemned building. Yeah, it's like I, I think even like crack addicts would be like, you know, we can do better than this. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, it just that's that's what I th I thought. Well, that and again, like conventional like religion, which that I'm you know sure it can be kind of seen as you know, Reagan esque stuffy conservative like status quo, but it also you know is in and of itself you know a form of stability of sorts. And so um, you've got that. That's a very key visual theme and. Again, I think that we were talking about this before we went on air, but I think it's an interesting reflection of the artist because uh, Clive Barker is gay, um, but he also, you know, considers himself a Christian, even though conventional Christianity doesn't really accept him as he is or, the, or what he writes about. Um, and so it's, again, like an interesting fusion of things and also someone that uh, you know, I, I can relate to somebody who, you know, doesn't fit into any specific box, you know, perfectly and isn't really liked by either side. And it's like, well, I, I feel you for, the, for you, buddy. Uh, but, uh, again, I think that's such an interesting uh, connection uh, point there, plus the fact that um, the Cenobites themselves are, they call themselves, you know, um, you know, demons to some and angels to others, and it's like, it's sort of a continuation of the uh, ideas that H.P. Lovecraft started, of the idea that there are things in the universe beyond human understanding, um, and that so much of how we perceive those things, it depends on, well, what do we bring to it? Are we seeing these things as saviors of sorts, or, you know, are we scared of them, or, or what? You know, it's, uh, get into that, it's uh, a very, oh yeah, they get into that conceptually with uh, the introduction of Leviathan in the next movie, uh -huh. but we'll get oh, to yeah. that uh, later, mm -hmm. just felt like worth bringing up. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well, and, and obviously the, well, that and Absolutely. also the, well it, it, you're right though, it, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, Visually, it's something that doesn't look remotely human at all. If anything, it looks like the um, master control program from Tron. Um, but mm -hmm. it has a but it has a biblical name. The Leviathan is this great beast, you know, that uh, is extremely powerful. Time, yeah. Well, and that's but again, and that's such an interesting fusion there that you're blending a name that should be relatively familiar within anybody who's even got a cursory knowledge of Judeo-Christian uh, theology, and yet this thing that has the name, a familiar name, it's not even remotely humanoid. So, well, when you look again, at the book, the, or the novella, sorry, when you look at the novella, there's the engineer, which we mm -hmm. now know in movies is Leviathan, essentially. 
Mm-hmm. Although that's yeah, that's uh, uh, that's for our next episode, which is part two. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, well, but again, that's an important that's an important thing to establish that you know you've yeah, got these different levels of well, there's you got yeah. different levels of uh, familiarity within this cultural milieu that has largely cast aside what would then be seen as some form of conventionality uh, in favor of something that is the ultimate thrill and is. Again, forbidden knowledge like H.P. Lovecraft, but also you've got the um, S&M on steroids in the sense of it's not just mm-hmm. the physical, not just the physical flaying of the flesh, but it's also the um, tearing one's soul apart and something that it's like this perpetual torture that is pleasurable in some way, but also terrifying and beyond human comprehension and all that stuff, so... Well, you, when you look at that, you talk about the about conventional. I mean, that's part of the issue with Frank, is that when you look at the the book, the novella versus the movie and stuff. You know, Frank is shocked, so to speak, of the appearance of the Cenobites. When and that's something I wish they had really included in the movie that they don't is how Frank was expecting one thing. He was expecting, you know, hot Sports Illustrated models and stuff, and instead he got the Cenobites. <laughs> You know, yeah. so they're like, hey, you know, well, I know you weren't expecting this. However, you it's know, so and butterball. What is my eyes? They still convinced him, like, hey, well, you know, what you want is still in reach. And he's like, okay, I, I guess. All right, cool, let's uh, do this. But it's half a little bit like that. It's half a Go on, Jacob. Well, I was going to say, it just reminds me a little bit of that moment we talked about a couple weeks ago in Shazam, where he's going through all the different, uh, uh, you know, the the sins. It's like, lust, I thought you'd be hotter, honestly. (laughs) 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 It's it's the lust from Hellraiser. (laughs) I mean, mean, that's how it is in general. Like, you have the very conventional, run-of-the-mill vanilla sex, and then you have those fringe elements of where you are being tied up and you're being whipped and you're wearing a gimp outfit and you got dildos up your ass and shit like that. You know, that's kind of what the Cenobites are. Like, they take it to the extreme. And Frank, for all his, you know, hedonism and Mm -hmm. I'm looking for untold pleasures, when he Mm -hmm. is faced with that whole quote-unquote extreme, pleasurable whatever, he's like, Mm -hmm. you know what? Maybe I'm a bit more vanilla than I thought. And at the first opportunity, he bolts. He gets the fuck out because it's too much even for him. What about well, how I, uh, first experience? Uh, how, how, uh, I just want to quickly say uh, how I always interpreted that was that it's pain that's it's pleasure so intense that it becomes pain. Uh, and vice versa. Interpreted that. Exactly. That's something that, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of just intrinsic, um, and, well, and here's the thing, so there is a physiological reason for why pleasure and pain are often very um, interconnected is because there's a similar, uh, the areas that are mo- uh, the human body that are the most sensitive 
are the areas from which great pain and great pleasure can be derived often from the same stimuli. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, f- there's different, you know, emotional associations with, like, let's say, you know, if you're a child and you get spanked by a parent, then it's not, it's something that's a punishment. But then, you know, if you're into being spanked, then that same action in the same area of the body in a different context, it is a different, um, your brain processes it differently. And, um, you know, there are some yeah. people for whom, uh, there are some people for whom those kinds of stimuli can take on more and more extreme forms. Uh, but yeah, generally mm-hmm. there is a reason why those kinds of sensations, um, you know, get processed they're very heavily intertwined. It's a little bit like, you know, when you laugh and when you cry, um, many of the same physiological processes are involved. There's a big difference between someone playing with your clit until you can't take it no more and someone literally skinning the flesh off your back. There's a big difference between the two. And that's the problem with the Cenobites is that it may have started, like, in their mind, again... The Cenobites are operating on a whole other different plane than the rest of us. In their mind, they're thinking, oh, these are pleasures. But to normal human beings, what they're doing is torture, essentially. I do like how, um, I do like how apparently um, the studio balked because Barco wanted to call it the Hellbound Heart. And the studio balked and said, no, we can't do that. So I like how he suggested to call it Sadomasochus from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> and they were like, oh, well, oh, that's we definitely a- can't do that. Let's compromise. <laughs> that, that would be like, like, uh, that'd be like, a, that'd be like, like an Ed Wood movie. We haven't exactly gotten your first impression. Right, what right. was your uh, first impression of this film? Well... Surprisingly, not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, so, okay, this is one that um, I've actually been very well aware of these films for some time. Uh, the the lead Cenobite, uh, the one that apparently you don't tell Cloud Barker you want to call him Pinhead, apparently, uh, is... Uh, He's kind of an iconic figure, and I remember seeing that image as a child. I remember when these films came out, it stuck in my brain. And I've always known the title. I've always had, for the longest time, had less than zero interest in watching it. But I was there. I was aware of it. It was kind of like that. Yeah, and so... As I've gotten older and gotten a little more adventurous when it comes to horror and that kind of thing, I've been conflicted. Should I try this series? Should I? Maybe. But to be honest, maybe. What is is your pleasure? (laughs) I was not with it, that's for sure. I'll be honest, uh, the main reason I'm doing this is I didn't feel right to skip Kim's choices completely. Uh, (laughs) um, And I, a full disclosure, I did only watch the first one, so I'm mainly just going to be... Which is funny, because the first one's a more gruesome one. Well, yeah, well, I didn't really... 
Yeah. I, said anyway, the second anyway. one, I enjoyed the second one better, but I think that's just because I like the main villain a lot. I think the second well, one is psychologically... The second uh, one that better is better story, I think. It probably does, and if they and if the uh, yeah, main character, I'm I'm tempted to like. Part of it is, I, it. I, I, well, I'm now feeling like I will see it eventually, but I didn't really want to watch them back to back. Like I, I didn't really want to do that. But I'm, uh, I will give the film this. It's, uh, it's well made. I definitely felt like if they you could tell that this was Claude Barker's baby I feel like I feel like you can tell that he really put a lot of work into it uh, I did thoroughly enjoy the music and there were certain other aspects that I really got into uh, and there were certain aspects I did not get into and I do think that, um, yeah, it was interesting. I'm glad I saw it. I don't have the uh, extreme negative reaction that I did to when Brandon made me watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, <laughs> oh, that was tame. And, and I... Uh, that makes me hungry. We'll see... That, oh, that's a whole other discussion there. But like I said, as we were talking when we were getting ready to, this, <laughs> one's, a little, this one's a little closer to me uh, to, to to first saw, which I actually, I thought it was a, a good, well-made movie that had elements I didn't prefer to see. But uh, okay. I, I, I saw it, and I can stay with that, and I don't really feel the need to see the rest of them. This one, I actually have more interest in the second one than I do the other song movies. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the second one is a direct continuation of the first one. It stands on the concepts that uh, you have to see the first one to kind of prepare yourself for. Right. Yeah, I think you and again, really... I, I will admit, um, I was I was looking at this trivia a bit, and I mentioned the one part about the uh, state of masks from beyond the grave uh, rejected for the overtly sexual content. <laughs> and I love this part. He ultimately opened the floor to the production team to offer up their own suggestions, prompting a six-year-old female crew member to offer up what a woman will do for a good fuck. <laughs> I I remember that now. I have the. I just recently bought the Scarlet Box uh, set right. from Arrow that comes with Hellraiser One, Two, Three, and a bunch mm -hmm. of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember that story now. Uh, I'll admit that last title. I'd be curious. <laughs> <laughs> What's in, so what's interesting about like okay so you know the okay so in the sixties you have the sexual revolution continued into seventies porno chic uh, because like that the pornographic film genre becoming well decriminalized but also getting its own kind of artistic renaissance and then the eighties you have um, well the advent of home video and um, the less expensive production of pornography in general, uh, thanks to thanks to videotape, uh, but also you have the ability to indulge um, 
your sexual fantasies in a more direct fashion within your own home, at least in the burgeoning home video market, if not, um, you know, uh, the home video market even for just violent horror films. So you've got a greater access to these things in your own home, and you also have um, a period of kind of renewed uh, religious right kind of sexual repression with um, the Reagan administration and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's a very interesting blend of things, um, and you've got, um, well, and you've also got, you've also got, um, I imagine sadomasochism as a practice is far older uh, than that, but, like, I think some of them bringing that more to the forefront, at least in somewhat of the mainstream, would have been in the 80s, and I, I think it had more of a... Would have had... I think this movie had a role in that. Um, right, where... that and also for quite a while, um, the I, I think for quite a while, sadomasochism had more of an uh, more of a direct association with the LGBTQ community than it necessarily does now. At least when it was first emerging as some, you know, in the mainstream and some like in terms of the awareness of it and. Um, you know, the fact that, like, Judas Priest, they revolutionized the, the leather and the studs and everything, which was derived from S&M shops, and because um, Rob Halford is gay, um, you know, so there's a, conne there's a connection there, too, uh, in the same decade, you know. Well, Barker, I think Barker's work always has, like, this, like, weird sexual tint to it, because um, mm -hmm. what I was talking, what I was, um, trying to get to when I mentioned that I had that Scarlet Box is it includes his early short films, uh, Salome and the Forbidden, and they are, they're really weird, they're shot in like black and white like negative, and there's, there's a sequence in the Forbidden where I'm not sure what's supposed to be happening, but it is a naked man with an erection dancing to very dark ominous music, and that goes on for about ten minutes, Mm. Uh, and it was maybe one of the most disturbing things I'd I'd seen. It uh, sounded a little bit ever. like the scene in the Silence of the Lambs, but a little bit different. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, also, I think, oh, I think yeah, that was the crowd right in your face. Well, that time. was that was what you, I guess, in the chat. I guess that's what you were saying. Reminded you of something that I might have made in terms of the black and white. No, but, before uh, we got to that scene, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, but I mean, the the black and white for sure. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm all for that. Um, but it was, and, it was a retelling of Faust, supposedly. Mm. But, I, think uh, a lot of, I think a lot of what Clive Barker's stuff is is that it's almost he, his stuff is almost supposed to make you feel almost ashamed, like. Yes. You know, he knows that his stuff is kind of extreme. And so it's kind of like he wants to titillate you, but in, at the same time make you feel like, I shouldn't be feeling this because convention says I shouldn't. Yeah, it's kind of like the yeah. first time I saw the unrated version of Caligula. I saw it with three of my I saw it with three of my friends. One of them, Jacob Brandon, was Anna. <laughs> and the, the, the big, the big <laughs> I remember we were saying which one. Like, one the one of our friends was like, he turned to us and he went, "I'm not sure if I should be just disgusted or turned on right now." 
But then that's exactly what Clive Barker's work does for you. You're not really sure if you're supposed to be disgusted or turned on. He wants to to introduce you to something new and disturb you with it as much as he can. Exactly. Well, and I think good horror does that. I think Mm -hmm. good fiction does that. Um, Like, it shows you something you've never seen before and it introduces you to a world, a sensation, or whatever that you don't really know how to feel about it. I mean, and Caligula is an interesting example because um, it wasn't supposed to have any, uh, you know, the, the unsimulated sex and everything. It wasn't supposed to have oh, that. Yeah. That was, well, that Bob was because Guccione. of Bob Guccione's uh, penthouse pets. <laughs> and by God, by God, he was well, going to use them. Um, it's because but, they were uh, on money. But, well, and they, and, uh, you know, Tinto Bras wanted his nicks and Gore Vidal did and all that stuff. So that's, a, that's its own discussion. But the point is that, um, you know, so again, that's, well, that's a very good, um, again, historical basis because that movie internationally came out in 1979, but in the United States got a, like, 1980-81, you know, release and then became very popular on home video. Um, so again, you've got that, uh, as kind of laying the groundwork for something like this to come along and keep in mind that was a, you know, big budget film with lavish sets and brilliant actors in it doing a great job. Um, I think it's an under, I think it's a very underrated film. It's, it's kind of a mess, but it also is underrated. Um, but like, so you got that as a baseline and then you've got, you know, these other fringe elements kind of arising to the surface and then... Oh, then in um, 89, you got Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is all about con- kind of culminating all those things together within a little bit more conventional um, human sexual experiences, but again, th- through the lens, uh, quite literally, the lens of the video camera and mm-hmm. uh, through the lens of suburbia and all that stuff. So, I mean, you can see the, you can see the progression when you look at the history of this country and of of film, you know, you see the progression. Um, interesting that you mentioned the the shame aspect because uh, I think you could definitely take a um, a very strong LGBTQ reading of American Psycho, um, which was another you know work of transgressive fiction at around uh, a little bit later than The Hellbound Heart, but you know it was uh, Brad Easton Ellis who for quite a long time, um, was very coy with his sexuality, and he did go out with men and women, but then eventually, only relatively recently, did he finally just say, yeah, okay, I'm gay. Um, and you could definitely take that um, that angle with the novel's version of Patrick Bateman, how he's so, seemingly so hyper-masculine, and yet he's obsessed with not only his appearance, but those of others and the in both the film and the novel the one of the people that annoys the shit out of him that he doesn't kill is the closeted gay guy and so you know i I think you could most definitely read that uh interpretation into that story so i think i think that's definitely well that's definitely a a factor within that uh i think that ties more into bateman into patrick bateman's homophobia though because as soon as He's, he's about to strangle the guy, and he thinks Lewis. he's being come on. He's he's Lewis. About, Lewis. He's about to strangle Lewis, and Lewis thinks Patrick is coming on him, so he kisses his hand, and Bateman just freezes 
washes his hands. He's wearing gloves, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Washes his hands and walks out like... He doesn't it's know what to think. Yeah, it's such a threat to his mas- well, his version of masculinity that and, he just what cannot is, deal and, with it. And what does he have to do? He has to return some videotapes to see it all ties together. But you see, you see what I mean. You see what I mean, though. It's like with these similar writers, similar creative people working within a similar time, uh, trying to express this side of themselves that the mainstream sees as deviant, uh, and they themselves are inevitably internalizing at least some of it, uh, it's no wonder why it then turns into this transgressive fiction, so... Well, we're kind of getting off topic here. Let's, let's, yeah. look, also, let's look at the contrast between Kirstie and Julia. And also, not just the con- contrast between those two characters, but something that Brandon and I noticed in the uh, first movie is the contrast of Julia in the flashbacks versus the Julia that you see in the current timeline. Right. She seems more annoyed by her husband than actually caring about him. Yeah, yeah, in the flashbacks, yeah. in the flashbacks when you first when she first meets Frank, her makeup is even softer. Like her hair is different. Her, she's got mm-hmm. more natural look to her face. She seems very sweet and innocent and open. And <laughs> oh, you're there. Oh, you're Frank. Oh, hi. And then the modern day Julia is all bitter and closed off and everything. So you have to wonder, like, damn, like that dick must have been good. Frank is presented as like a predator and a criminal, yeah. and he, he yeah. seduces her pretty hard. I mean, he even... They fucked up her wedding dress. That's yeah, what he, didn't, he got her to do that. that. Like, she's known him for maybe ten minutes, and he got her to do that. I mean, yeah. Well, he's, to have he's, her begging to his day... Well, he's, yeah. kind of a, he's kind of a freak on that level, but the... Um, kind of? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, uh, well, but here's the thing, so another interesting kind of sociological context there, so she's like, how old do we want to say she is, like, maybe 40-something, but like a really, but like a really good 40. In the flashbacks, I would say, I would, I mean, because keep in mind, people look a lot older in the movies in the 80s and 70s than they do now, yeah. so I'm going to guess that the, she was, she was late, late 30s. Oh, I'm saying the character is supposed to be in her 30s. Okay, well, the, the point is, like, she looks like she's someone who, like, she, it would look, we- point is, it would look weird if she were to go to, like, a singles bar or something like that, even though she has no problem picking up guys because she is, like, a very, well, she's a very beautiful woman, but, like, yeah. it's, it's such that, like, she's not a girl anymore. There's no way you would, yeah. you would say that, you know, and so... Um, this is, again, um, a time of a lot of different social repressions, a lot of different uh, return to certain puritanical ideas of womanhood and things like that. You've got a woman who is not a girl anymore, is not fun and fancy free, but is clearly longing for the kind of excitement that I'm sure she clearly had or wanted to have back in well, back then. When you look at the when you look at the difference between like okay, so you look at the difference between Frank versus Larry. Larry is a you know, on paper he is that good guy. He's that guy you want your daughter to marry. Honest, sweet, wonderful, loves his daughter. And he clearly he loves his wife. wife. 
It does have atrocious ta taste in uh, interior design, as we mentioned. In <laughs> and, and like, I could, I could buy them buying that house if he like explicitly said that it was like a fixer upper, or he yes, was like, uh, yes. uh, no, family home. A family home. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, was like, it, was, like, it belonged to his grandmother. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that makes a little bit more sense because like. Like, I, yeah, if, I were, like if I were to, like, if I were to remake this or whatever, then yeah. I would have it to where he was, like, a house flipper or something, yeah. you know, because I, I could buy that, you know, but, yeah. uh, if anyone, yeah, well, that I understand them moving into the house because it was a family home. That's why Frank's shit was there. It yeah, was a yeah. home that him and his brother had inherited. But do and, right away, there's that, there's that line, too. You know, he must need another hideout. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like he would only like Frank would only go back to that home mm -hmm. if he needed to get there for whatever reason, which is why I mean he was there when he died ish when he got taken to hell. But again, I, I look at Julia and the way that they she's the difference between yeah. the Julia's that we know the flashback Julia versus the present day Julia. You have the Madonna and the whore. You know, you have yeah. the, the, the flashback Julia is very soft. She's very, you know, not just soft in her looks, but soft spoken. She's very cheerful. She's nice. She's welcoming. And then the modern day Julia has that her skin is very pale, very washed mm -hmm. out with the foundation. There's mm -hmm. no rosiness to her cheeks except for the very extreme red rouge. She's her eye cool. makeup yeah. is different. Her, yeah. Even her oh, hair is very different. Actually, it's like I a goddamn Mad Max video from the 80s. There was one scene where I noticed, like, she's trying to wipe away the blood, and it put more red in her. Yeah, that was intentional, and I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. They lit uh, her from a. You can yeah. tell where they lit her from above. So now, it, she's very like, like very extreme looking. Now, Kevin, uh, I know you're going to be the expert out of this particular group. I was sorry. looking at. I was looking at previous cast credits. Kitty Bennett in uh, Pride and Prejudice was one of the youngest two, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Kitty, Kitty Bennett was the next to youngest person. Lydia the Bennett was the youngest. So, so Kitty Bennett was apparently this actress's first screen credit. Yep. Pride and Prejudice. I'm thinking, yep. I'm thinking that's kind of a fun... Uh, you are talking about the younger one, and I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a little bit of that naivety there, although she's definitely more sedate than Kitty was. <laughs> to be fair, the character of Kitty was a follower. She was not yeah. the type that... Lydia was the wild it child. actually does... You get the impression that the early Julia was a follower, and that's why she's so easily kind of... Well, I, could, actually, I could see... Now, this is something I wanted to just bring up in relation to that. A, a lot of this talks about corruption. A lot of the themes are corruption. About yes. having never really... What you have never truly being enough. And it being mm -hmm. enticing to keep going higher and higher. And with her, I could say that that was a real corruption that she yes. went through. That what exactly. she was getting after that point was never quite what she had that one night. Well, but yeah. remember we were talking about was more uh, and more. Remember we were talking about in the novel the reason why Julia is even with uh, sorry Rory is what they refer to him as in, in the novel, but in the movie his name is Larry. She's with him for the 
it's a marriage of convenience on her part. That at one point she did kind of care about him, but Larry is. I, I mean, come on, look at him. They, the concept between him and Clay, he's, I'm sure Larry's, Larry's a sweetheart, but considering the fact that Julia's obviously looking for something more exciting, the contrast mm. between him and Frank, it's like night and fucking day. <laughs> Larry is the responsible one. He's very, you know, family-oriented. He's very, okay, let's do this by the book. And so she's with him for the obvious marriage of convenience she's looking for the comfort aspect but then of course you know not to get all cliche and shit frank awakens something deep in her loins that she never knew was there she hadn't experienced in a long time and that's sort of the you know it's it's this idea of trying to uh you know get that old passion back and not be relegated to you know the um, the kind of woman that is the mother who's like sexless because she's reached a certain age, or at least that's yeah. what society pushes upon her. And I mean, they they make that archetype very explicit in the second one, in the sense that her stepdaughter, this absolutely gorgeous uh, young girl. Yeah, and then you've got the step, yeah, well, you got the stepmother, and it's like, well, you've got the evil queen and Snow White archetypes there, mm -hmm. and they make that explicit. So, you know, but that's that's why in so many fairy tales, why older women are the uh, antagonists. Uh, if they are the antagonists, that's why it's because of the, you know, the association of older oh. women with in, infertility and all that stuff, and the jealousy mm -hmm. and all that. Um, it's I mean, because you're a guy, so you may not understand this, but very often when you have the mother-daughter relationships, I mean, you see this in fiction all the time, but in real life, it's a lot scarier in real life than it is. You have these mothers who live vicariously through their daughters. Mm -hmm. And if daughter be very beautiful then and let's say the mom used to be beautiful or maybe she you know was never beautiful either way she's gonna live vicariously through that child through that daughter with me oh, yeah. well i think my mother wanted me to be the, this beautiful skinny tall statuesque daughter and instead she got a short fat nerd <laughs> and so that disappointed her a lot you know, so someone like Julia, then yeah, she's going to look at, you know, Kirstie, and she's going to be like, oh, well, fuck, you know, she's gorgeous, she's in the prime of her life, she's mm -hmm. got her, her whole life ahead of her, and I'm stuck with her damn daddy, who is boring as fuck. There was something else that I found interesting with the film, because it is such a de departure from the book. You know, in the book, the character of Kirstie, she's not Larry slash Rory's daughter, she's his co-worker, who's in love with him. But with the movie, they turn that character into Larry's daughter instead. And she's much younger, actually, in the movie, obviously much younger. And then the other weird thing they hinted upon in the movie that they didn't really explore any further until the second movie, which even then they still only hinted at it, was that Frank at some point may or may not have molested Kirstie. Hmm. Which is weird. Well, he clearly is. A, he clearly is okay with. He's clearly okay with incest. Well, he yeah. made that comment like you're, you remember, come to daddy. Like, yeah. Whoa! Like, like. And that was the, that was the yeah. trigger that let her know. You know, not 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 the fact that uh, 
her father looked like he had um, a, a bad wig that was glued on or anything yeah, like that. But it was, yeah, yeah well, well, I'm kill her dad when it was just when when Frank was in his right. full like skinless glory. Right. She was like, "It's me, it's Uncle Frank," and she was well, like, "What the fuck?" Well, you know, I mean, well, like later, that was when she realized that he, that her her dad, quote unquote, was an imposter. Was that line, and that's like, yeah, yeah. And from the corrupting individual or whatever, I am intrigued by this too. As again, on early credits, Ashley Lawrence is the one that plays Kirsty. Hellraiser is her first movie. But she had two previous credits, and her immediate prior credit was on the Michael Landon series, Highway to Heaven. <laughs> nice. I find that hilarious. It's, it's uh, <laughs> No, I mean, for, for her first role, I have to say, I mean, I think she absolutely yeah. knocked it out of the park, and I think mm-hmm. not only in terms of how she played it, but in terms of the mm-hmm. writing, of this character, I think she's got to be one of the best horror protagonists, uh, certainly one of the best female horror protagonists ever, because she uh, she's exceptionally brave, and she doesn't, it, it just seems so natural for this character to be brave. She's not invincible or anything, um, but she has no qualms about running right into danger. And for good, because mm-hmm. her father's in danger, and um, you know, so I mean, that, I think that that says a lot. That says a lot about this person, and that she, and, and there's something about, about Ash's face. Like, she's got that look in her eyes that is like, you know, even though there are these Cenobites, it's like she is going to do what it takes to defeat them, and it's like. You know, that mm-hmm. is a very powerful thing for a character to have, is that... I want to say it's the, the those killer eyes, but, I mean, that's not really what I mean, because that implies, like, malice, but it's more so, like, the the look of someone that, you know, they're, they're afraid, but they're pushing through it, and they're not going to let the extremely powerful entity get the better of them, even though they're not... They're, they're mortal, but, you know, it's like that... When I saw that, I was like, man, you know, for, especially because this is like her first film, and I'm like, wow, you know, this, th- this says a lot about her, her caliber, but also the, the character that, you know, she, she's not invincible, so she's not like, you know, the, whatever they call it, the Mary Sue equivalent, um, I guess that's the term now, but like, she's not that, but she's also not the, uh, the bimbo, and she's not the, uh, final girl really and she's not the damsel in distress so like she's just kind of her own person it's like well, she's just a normal really she's good. just a normal she's i wouldn't even call her i mean i actually her 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 character type has become kind of an archetype where she's not the virginal final girl that you see in most horror movies she's not the whore she's not some badass who can do cartwheels in her sleep kind of thing she's just a normal girl you know, or yeah, young woman, yeah. because she's, she's just kind of there. Yeah, she just kind of there. Basically. She doesn't have to be this extreme... Go ahead. She doesn't have to be this extreme archetype. She can be her own person. Like, any normal young woman will want to save her father and maybe her stepmother. You know? <laughs> 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 I like that there's... Well, there's, there's clearly a history there, and we don't have to know 
all of it, but it's like we, we can tell by the stepmother's age, but also the Christie's age, what some of that tension would have been. And also, um, I, I found it also really refreshing that, well, for all the reasons you just said, plus I found it refreshing that Christie is someone who she... To me, she struck me as someone who maybe was fresh out of college and was going to be like a young professional, like getting her life together and, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And, you know, having a boyfriend and like just kind of, you know, she like not high school, not college for once. And it's like, you know, that that's kind of refreshing, but also someone that like she wants to be there for her dad, but she also wants to have her own life, she wants to get her life started, and, you know, she got a place, and she's not gonna live live out of her parents' basement, which, you know, she's lucky, because nowadays a lot of people do have to do that, um, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like, yeah, that, that was, that was, well, that was refreshing in the writing, and, uh, well, it also, it signals to us, the audience, that she's a go-getter, and she wants to live independently, but she's not above familiar loyalty, uh, I like a lot of people, so, you know, it's like, that's that's good. It's like, sometimes movies can get so entrenched in familiar tropes that they get so far away from the way that a lot of people really behave that it becomes ridiculous, so, in this exactly. case, it's like, this is, well, and this is a character that, you know, she, it's okay for her to be, I, I mean, I was, like, blown away by how beautiful this girl was, but also, like... <laughs> how she, uh, you <laughs> know, has, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, but, like, she has... Lawrence is very beautiful, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, but she's, it's even beyond just pure beauty, like, she, again, she's got that look in her eyes that I think signals that she's not just a pretty face and that she really has the strength of character that I think is, that's what puts her over the edge, uh, over the top of, of other t similar protagonists, you know? But Dane, like you said, in how normal she was, I think that's what makes this movie great, is the writing of the, char the characters. They're realistic. You know, yeah. they're, again, they're not these extreme archetypes, you know, where the obvious villain, the obvious, you know, saint, the obvious bad girl, the obvious good girl. You don't have that. You have these very realistic, complicated relationships of, you know, and I, I wish we had gotten to know more about the relationship between Larry and Frank of how they became to be so separated. But at the same time, I think given their lifestyle choices, that pretty much explains why they became so, you know, <laughs> disjointed, yeah. is that mm -hmm. Larry is, again, he is there night and day. I mean, my brothers are very much night and day. You have one brother who is very much the family guy, the churchgoer. He went to the military. He did, you know, the professional thing, got an education. The other brother was like, okay, whatever, I'm going to live my life however I want to live it. And mm -hmm. that's how Frank and Larry are, is that Larry is the buttoned-up, pencil-pushing dweeb, or whatever you want to call him. You know, mm. he's the serious one, and Frank is like, fuck it. I have an inheritance coming to me at some point. I'm just going to live my life by the seat of my damn pants. Again, he's a hedonist. Yeah, you know, I, like, so uh, I like Frank's line um, about Chrissy's father. You know, he was already dead long before we got to him. Exactly. Well, you know, he kinda, was yeah, like, speaks to the yeah. lifestyles and how he views him. 
Exactly. Like, oh. he, looks at, he looks at Larry as just boring, like, because he what he went to college, probably. He went and got a, a, a professional job, you know, a mortgage and all that shit. You know, and Larry looks at that stuff kind of as, meh. Not Larry, sorry. Yeah. Frank is like, you yeah, know, that's not, that's not the life for me. That's not how I want to live. You know, and Kirstie, she is your normal... I mean, if she is a little girl next door-ish, but... It's just like any other young young woman who lost her mom at a young age and then gained a stepmom. And when you look at the flashbacks of um, Larry and Julia's wedding, you look at Kirstie and how she's dressed. Clearly, she's meant to be a little girl almost, you know, very young uh-huh. when Larry and Julia married versus, you know, probably, I mean, I'm going to say maybe 10 years had passed, maybe at least at least a decade. And so, yeah, well, I mean, she she struck she struck me as someone who maybe, uh, well, it could be just because of you know that the they they couldn't de-age someone like they can now, but like she struck me as someone who maybe at youngest maybe like fifteen something like that, you know. So, but like in other words, in other words, old enough to have had a lot of memories of her mother set in stone in her brain such that this interloper comes along and there's going to be tension there. And especially if she's, you know, becoming a woman herself, then that will also create more tension. So, you know, I I think that, uh, it's not like she was a little kid who barely remembers her mom and thus is able to get over it sooner, you know? But it's weird because, like, when you when they when they're moving into the house and mm-hmm. Kirsty comes to visit, I'm not getting the tension. I mean, maybe there is some tension and difficulties there, uh, you know. But the way that she's talking with Julia, she's like, "Oh, did you did Daddy tell you?" Like they're talking. She's yeah. talking to her like normal, you know. If she truly well, they, they probably Julia's kind of snappy at her though. Julia's like, no, he didn't. She's 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 yeah. she's well, snappy at her. Sure, but like, she just walked away. Well, but think about this. I mean, when you're around family members with whom you don't always get along to whatever extent that is. Uh, <laughs> more, well, but for, to whatever extent that is, because sometimes it can be more extreme than others, but like when you're with them to whatever degree, for the most part, to avoid conflict, you're probably going to try to put your best foot forward just to get through the, the day in a mm-hmm. the encounter. So I imagine that she's probably gotten to this place where she is able to have a civil conversation with this person that she has had tensions with in the past, but does she necessarily hate her? No, because she loves her dad and she wants her dad to not have to be alone for the rest of his life. So I imagine that she is trying to put her best foot forward, but she's never going to be her mom either. You know, so it's like... I can like definitely say that they've got family members that are like, you know what, I really want to fucking talk to you, but I guess I will. Yeah, you know what I mean, though, right? You know what I mean? It's like that you are able to suck it up enough to try to connect with those people on the level that you can in such a way that it doesn't make you want to tear their throat out or for them to want to tear your throat out. And um, yeah, I, I got suck it up with, uh, you know, co-workers sometimes. Exactly. And I think that's just, that's just the way that you get along with people that you 
maybe you don't hate their guts, but you don't necessarily like them either. Um, yeah. Well, the, the, to go back quickly to the point that you were making about how the relationships felt real and everything, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. The one thing I would say, well, because it is a movie and you can't expostulate in the same way that you can in a novel, uh, the characters do fit within pre-existing archetypes, but they become real people within those archetypes, and the reason why those archetypes exist in the first place is because they're common enough in real life to where, you know, they're identifiable. Like, you can look at the stepmother and the daughter who is younger and beautiful and coming into her own uh, sense of womanhood and everything. We know that archetype because we've seen it in fairy tales, you know, since we were children, but there's a reason why that archetype's there. It's because it's common enough in real life to where we understand it, even if you know, if even if we weren't uh, first introduced to it in fairy tales, we we understand that it, why it's there. Um, so yeah, and same with uh, Larry. Like he is the the or it's the old. Uh, there's the saying of the one that you marry versus the one you fuck. You know, and. Um, he marries the one that I've never heard that saying. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's it's a it's it's out there or, or something to that effect. Basically, in the idea. Fairness, uh-huh. In all fairness to Frank, he does get under your skin. Quite literally. Um, literally. Yeah. Well, the, the, well, but that, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if that's exactly how yeah. it goes, but it's like something to that effect that there are. He absorbs the flesh of men that Julia brings him to regenerate. Well, and the, uh, the, the point being that there are, certain, there are certain people that you are with in your life that, you know, it's like, are they marriage material or are they just a good fuck, you know, kind of material? And. You know, that whether you're man or woman, whatever, you'll find that there are people who they are willing to have one or the other and they don't want to see if they can't have both in one package. And oh, um, as the only woman here, I can say that we call that the good on paper guy. The good yeah. on paper guy, the good on paper guy is that guy who ticks all those boxes. You know, the guy that. Again, your mother, if she's got you know half a brain cell, would want their dear sweet daughter to bring this guy home. That's Larry. Now, the guy that bends your back out, the guy that throws you over oh. the back of the couch and fucks you into next week, the guy that makes you go, I've never had someone go this deep before, that's Frank. Uh-huh. Now, in a perfect world, you have, yeah, basically, um, you know, lady, the, 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 the man version of lady in the streets, but a freak in the bed. Exactly. That's, that's what Larry and Frank are. You know, Frank oh, that they're is, separated into two people instead of, yeah, and, and the, ideal, the ideal that you want, if you have any blood in your veins, is you would want yeah. some combination of the two, so that way your exactly. life will last. And I mean, but, but again, it's like people, it's partially it's what you give the other person, but also partially what do they see in you and what are you, um, what are they getting a Larry out of in the, uh, Basically a Larry in the street and a Frank in the bed. Exactly. Well, but here's, and then, but then the thing is like you have like my situation where like I definitely tried to present myself as a good stable catch, you know, for my now ex-fiance and 
you know, present yeah, myself, well, but present myself well to her family, who, her family always treated me very well, and they always really liked me, and I've still talked to them, and they've still treated me really well. They should know uh, she's a hoe. Yeah, well, that, well and that's the thing, like, I tried to also... I don't even yeah. really know what happened, so I'm going to sit this out. Well, it's, it's, a, that's, it's a long story, but, like, the, the point is that I tried to present myself as that kind of catch, but also tried to uh, get my Frank on in as much as I, as much as, as much a way as I could. But then guess what? She broke off our, our marriage. And then this is a new bit of information. Apparently after having, after we went our separate ways, she immediately hooked up with someone else as if I didn't matter. So, you know, it's like you can try to be that combination of the two. And yet, it still won't necessarily work out. So it's like, I don't know, was I too much of a Larry? Was I not enough of a Frank? Was I just... You know, I know Walter is saying, you know that song, Get Your Freak On? I'm be like, Get Your Frank On. Get yeah, your freak yeah. on. <laughs> Why not? But, but I mean, I, again, that, that goes back to Clive Barker and his whole, his whole shtick is that you have that separation of the... I mean, Larry could. Larry is extremely boring, except for the fact that he likes boxing. He yeah. does like your stereotypical manly pursuits, you know. But I mean, look at look at how different. Look at how different he and, and Frank are. Frank likes the extreme. Something something as simple as seeing blood has Larry like. Oh, I'm gonna call Paul. Yeah, oh, he, yeah. He's, he, well, he did a really, he did a really looking cut from that. Yeah, yeah. Probably, probably yeah. 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 that cut was bullshit. To be fair, that's what, yeah. like, of, uh, like that's like an artery they got on that nail. Well, I was, was going to say, like, I mean, he, if really? he didn't, well, in all in all fairness, like if he, I mean, I've I've seen plenty of gruesome things in my day in movies and in real life. And I've never, ever felt like I wanted to faint or whatever. Now, if I was losing blood, you know, even if I didn't see it, I mean, I probably would feel faint just because, well, I was losing blood, you know, losing mm -hmm. consciousness. So I, get, I give him mm -hmm. a little bit of a break on that level. But, yeah, just the sight of it would be enough to, like, make him sick, which that's its own thing. Larry, but, yeah, but was, Larry, Larry, I was joking around. Sorry, David, what was that? I, I was going to say that Larry was the kind of man who was the working man, a family man, and when he came home, uh, he would rather read a book than turn over, kiss his wife, okay, good night, honey. Exactly. You know? I had a professor like that in college where he had the wife and kids at home, but he would sit there and stay in his office and tell his wife, oh, I'm meeting with graduate students, I'm doing this. But he would sit in his office and read. He was that much of a fucking nerd and how his life was so boring. He would rather do that than to go and interact with his family. And as far as Larry, like... That definitely, you know, wasn't, that definitely wasn't me. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you that. Like, when I came home, it's like mm -hmm. I wanted to... Well, well, I wanted to be the, the, the what would have been, uh, I, I hate to say family man because that implies children, which is was not in the picture, but like, no, you, know, that, you, don't, you don't have to have children to be the quote unquote family man. Well, I mean, I the point is I tried to pay attention to my significant other and to do what I thought you were supposed to do um, on that level, uh, 
prior to and in addition to getting my Frank on as much as I could. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, I thought, again, you're, you're hitting all the, all the boxes there. And, um, you know, it's such that I, but you do wonder with this guy, Larry, if he ever had any kind of sexual spark in him at all. I mean, it sure doesn't seem like it, but... He, well, he clearly did with his. He clearly yeah. did with his wife because obviously he produced this knockout daughter, and so you know he could get it up at well, least a little bit. I, I mean, a lot there of people can get it up and fuck. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Uh, later on in there, where they were actually where well, he thought they were getting ready to go at it, but uh, she was not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, well, but like, you know, that's, well, I think well, she, was using it, she was using it as a, to- a tool of manipulation to yeah. keep him from investigating the noise in the attic. And then, of course, later on, when they're in bed and she's like, okay, I got him away, he's not going to go investigate the attic, that's when she realizes that Frank was well, okay, so he may or may not have, he may have been in the bedroom, she may have been hallucinating it and been afraid because at some point, you realize, and even I, I mean, Brandon and I were talking about this when we were watching it. At some point, you realize that Julia does, to a certain degree, care about Larry. But again, her, her, her care for him has limits. Like, her whole plan from jump, when once she realizes what's wrong with, what's going on with Frank, and he, you know, he reveals himself to her, and he says, I need Flash, I need this, and another. Her whole plan with him was that okay, so we're going to get you normal looking again, we're going to get you back to, you know, the way you were, and then we're going to leave together. Like, she wasn't like, let's kill Larry, and then we can go. She was like, we're going to back up and just fucking leave. And Mm -hmm. poor Larry, you know, would be alive, but, you know, they'd leave him in the dust. Frank clearly had other plans, because, you know, when, when push came to shove... At the towards the end, the, in the in the climax of the fucking movie, what does Frank do? He knows what he was always going to do. He fucking ditches her, betrays her, and mm-hmm. and takes her essence or whatever you want to call it, and moves on, which is a piece of shit movie to do. But again, Frank clearly did not care about Julia. He was just using her yep. to help mm-hmm. him get healthy again. He he did mm. the uh, the existential slash life force equivalent of hitting it and quitting it. <laughs> yeah, well, remember remember mm. the flashback. Where, and this is something they they showed in the flashback that you don't think about until later towards the climax of the film when he asked her, "Well, what will you do?" And she's like, "Anything." You know, again, it's on the <laughs> it's on the eve of her fucking wedding to her brother to his brother, and she's like, "I will do anything to make you stay." <laughs> She's been right, running yeah. away from this man for years. Well, and time now to, that he's back. Time to, time to learn what the definition of a backdoor man is, then. <laughs> she, she's been pining away for this man for years. And Frank, Frank again, he's been around the block many times, more times than the milkman. Frank sees he's got a, a rube. She has been pining away for him. She's clearly still in love with him or in awe of, of him or whatever it is. In lust. I don't care what you call it. And so he's like, Julia, you know, he knows he's got her. He know he knew she was in love with him, you know, but she was marrying his brother for comfort. And so when he was, when he was weakened and he needed help, who does he reach out to? Julia. Who does he manipulate and gaslight? Julia. And who does he ultimately betray? 
Julia. Exactly. I thought of a uh, I thought of a good movie analogy when we were talking about these movies. Frank was hoping for Caligula, but the Cenobites only watched Antichrist. Well, that is a good analogy, though. I mean, because, uh, you know, again, there is a, in that film, uh, Antichrist, which is also very good, um, you know, that is, you got there a connection of well, sex and... Well, that and also, but like she makes him ejaculate blood, and it's like you know, you see, you've got like a very direct, you got a very direct connection of pleasure and pain, and also of uh, you know, uh, that's just kind of a discussion, but it's like you know, that's a, it is a good connection there. When I think pleasure and pain, I think all the way back to my uh, the Marquis de Sade. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, well, he's the reason. Well, he's the reason why we have the word sadism because it's na- it's named after him. And I, I actually, uh, you know, not to get too far off topic, but like I did uh, listen to the full audio book of the 120 Days of Sodom that he wrote when he was in the Bastille in secret. And, uh, you know, Salo, the movie, which I had said was the most disturbing film I'd ever seen. And I still say that that's true. But now that I've read the book, it's like, well, the, the movie is like a walk in the park with the Care Bears. Like, holy shit, you know. <laughs> The, the book is, like, infinitely worse. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's where we get the word sadism from. Uh, but, uh, it, well, mm-hmm. the interesting, so the interesting thing uh, that is a point of difference with, say, the Marquis de Sade, who is, he was only ever concerned about his own pleasure and not that of the other person, which is, again, that's just pure sadism. Um and, or, uh, as he would have called it, libertinage, um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's what he called it, and, uh, well, for him, it was, uh, it, it was not just, you know, being cruel, it was, like, a whole way of life, it was a whole way of seeing the world as your oyster, but, like, in the most extreme, most, you know, at the expense of others sense of the, of the term, uh, and that's just the sadism part, but S&M, in its, in its truest, healthiest form, from what I have heard from those who have partaken in it, um, the ideal situation for such a thing is that it is like this ultimate form of trust between the two parties, that you're having one who is the dominant and the other one who is the submissive, and that they're able to fulfill needs that they can't otherwise get in their normal uh, either friendships or romantic relationships or whatever, uh, and oftentimes, like, there's the stereotype of the executive who has a lot of, the, the male executive, who has a lot of weight on his shoulders in real life, who then has to feel vulnerable, and his mistress is able to, his uh, dominatrix, you know, is able to get him to feel that, you know, and so he gets this thing that he can't get, Otherwise, and so, you know, you do have, uh, that's kind of in its idealized form, that it's this ultimate form of trust, and that's why you have safety words and everything, and then when it goes wrong, that's where you get something like Fifty Shades of Grey, which becomes, you know, abuse, and, um, so I, so I think in this case, you've got, uh, more of 
kind of beyond the realms of your conventional S and M practitioners, or or even just like your married couple that wants to add a little spice into the relationship, which is mm-hmm. you know what a lot of I'd say the majority of people that are going to be trying that that's more or less what they're into. But there is a very uh, select subset of people that fall within that larger spectrum that will, you know, put hooks into their skin and do those kinds of things. So, you know, that's, and that's where the horror aspect comes in. And, and then you combine that with the fact that it's supernatural and that it's not just a physical flaying of flesh, but it's also tearing one's soul apart in this eternal torture and this bifurcating of a person's being uh, and like corrupting their uh, their former selves into a Cenobite, into a practitioner of this extreme torture and everything. You know, it's a, uh, that's again, that's where the horror aspect comes in, but uh, Take a breath. It, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dave! <laughs> okay, we're going to move on to the second movie. Um, soon as we... Uh, did we talk about music or no? This is a really oh, this is a of score. Really, the scores. I do like the score, but the, yeah. the drunk, the boom, boom, boom. Yeah. It's very ominous sounding. I was a band geek, so I'm not calling it. Well, that was, Chris, that was Christopher. Christopher Young was the composer there, and he uh, he actually did the score for Spider Man Three after Danny Elfman did the first two. And uh, the score of Spider-Man 3 actually did carry the themes of that Danny Elfman oh. uh, established, but I think it carried it into darker territory musically. And he, and, did, do uh, the, he did the recent remake of Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. He did the one so of the... He's got a decent is, pedigree. Mm-hmm. He's just not a household name for some reason, even Drag though... Me to hell. His scores for this one and the second one are both really good. They're very ominous, but also a little mm-hmm. bit operatic at the same time. Oh, I mm-hmm. feel like the the score... Now, I feel like the second one doubles down on it a bit, and we'll get to that uh, oh, yeah. next. But, mm-hmm. but I swear, this score is one of the uh, best things about the film for me. It just mm-hmm. it, it feels yeah, epic. It feels just like uh, much bigger than everything else. And you can feel that ominousness, that that just oh, that that feeling. It feels like it had a lot of production value. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think well, I they actually it, did. Well, I think the Omen's book. If you look at the Omen and you look at listen to the music from that movie, it's like they were trying to go for that. Well, and it, it also mm-hmm. helps to that, like, because the music is so big, it helps to make up for the fact that really, when you think about it, so when they actually go into, I don't even know if you, hell or, or the, the Cenobites realm, whatever you want to say, um, it's uh, when they go in there, what is it mostly? It's like... Uh, just a few rooms that they have. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they, do ch- they do tend to tread the same ground multiple times, and mm-hmm. they're trying to, they're clearly trying to make it seem a lot bigger than it actually is, um, just mm-hmm. given what I'm sure was the budget limitations and the fact that most of the budget inevitably went to the costumes and the effects, uh, of which there were many. Um, but, you know, it's like that also helps to not have us think about that. The fact that they are having to tread the same grounds on what is 
clearly kind of a limited set, but it feels much larger than that. So why don't we just hit we should hit the effects, because this has yeah. pretty amazing effects. Oh, like, yeah, only a few the effects on this one. It was just the, the, yeah. the rats, because that was something that I wanted to bring up. It was something <laughs> I, le I learned about because me and Kim were watching it, and she was like, I wouldn't put it past them to uh, use real rats. I was like, probably not, because they did have a, a maggot and roach wrangler uh, there. But <laughs> apparently... They had to go to the people who were raiding it because they they had to convince them, no, these are not real rats. They had to take the little animatronic rats that they had and show them to those people before they would allow them to release the film. Well, you know yeah. the reason for that is you have you, you have Cannibal Holocaust to blame yeah. for that. Oh, Cannibal Holocaust is the one. What they did in that fucking movie, you know, you had animal rights activists who were like, okay, so let's make sure you're not actually killing rats. And yeah. nailing them to a wall. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I love Cannibal Holocaust for what it did for both the cannibal genres and having laid the groundwork for found footage. But, like, the the stuff that they were doing to those animals, it's like there's, there's no way that you could have faked it. Uh, so it's like, well, that's pretty indefensible. And it's like, a, it's not only real but it's like actively sadistic you know and that's it's different than in other cannibal films i've seen where there also is real animal death but like in context it's such that like they're doing it out of self-defense or it's like nature footage of animals eating other animals or they're doing it for you know food or some, some like practical reason but like in cannibal holocaust it is like actively sadistic and i'm like wow you know you're not helping your case at all you know? i have to it back to the beginning on what i said as, as said about that special effect between the floorboards that to yeah. me i will never forget uh, as long as i live uh, uh, so, uh so to me seeing that uh, seeing uh, seeing that creature mutate underneath the floorboards thanks Big as stop motion. Uh, yeah. Well, that, there's there's one there's one little thing because yeah, the effects are wonderful. One little thing that uh, James Rolfe brought up in his review um, that I that I couldn't help but wonder myself is what is the formula for how much life force one has to get uh, in order to get. <laughs> X, X amount of body back because it seems like with just a bit of blood that you know he's able to get like his skeleton, his brain, his you know some of his muscles back you know with just that little bit of blood and then he gets like a full human uh, a human full of blood full of life force and all that and he gets he gets a some little mass a little bit but it's like yeah but that's it's like it, it, there is a little bit of inconsistency there and so i was like well what is the formula there and with uh with the stepmother and the second one like there you know it seems like there's a little bit more of a cause and effect as far as uh the fact that she does manage to successfully regenerate fully and there was like what was it like six or seven people that it took you know so it's like you can you can make more of a cause and effect 
kind of um, yeah, algebraic equation in your head for this many full yeah. humans yeah. equals this amount yeah. of regeneration. It makes Frank's line one more, maybe two. Kind of funny. Yeah, because like there were there were a lot more than that. But now, granted, he is kind of new at this, you know, so he hasn't quite gotten it down to a science. And she, well, yeah, but like she, she clearly, obviously, has done it before, so she's got a better idea of the whole thing. And uh, well, and she also she had more of her physical form uh, intact in the first place. Um, and, uh, you know, so she didn't have to quite regenerate as much, but I think she also uh, put her resources to better use, uh, shall we say. Um, On that note, let us do our outros. I don't think we've, we've talked about effects generally, but I don't think we've specifically mentioned the thing that kind of cemented this thing in my mind and most people's minds. Which is specifically the makeup effects. Yeah, like costume design. That. Yeah, I was very. Imp I, I was impressed with the makeup effects. I will say that it was. <laughs> yeah, the makeup effects are kind of gothic in design, and mm -hmm. come out of a point of like latex and. Uh, you know, even the Rocky Horror, mu uh, 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 the horror mm -hmm. Musical had uh, some aspect of, you know, sadism involved there. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're, they're both derived from the same uh, subsets of, you know, gay fashion at the time um, that then kind of bled into the mainstream. And um, the, uh, the interesting thing, which again, that's why I brought up the Judas Priest example, because that look derived from specifically gay S&M clothing shops that were kind of off the, off the main street. Kind Rocky, of hidden. Rocky Horror Musical made it okay. So. Well, that, but it's like, you get my point, it's like these things kind of build on themselves and then like in the 80s you had a dark wave and you had more like formal, you know, goth music that became a thing and so you got a fusion of those looks in the Cenobites who, you know, I've known plenty of people that are, like, horror fans and also people that like, you know, gothic music and fashion and everything, and uh, Hellraiser will definitely be a go-to for them uh, on all those fronts. And, um, you know, so it, it's very influential on that level. Plus, um, I have to say, well, this is even more true in the second one, but I can't help but wonder if um, Silent Hill took a little bit of inspiration from the Hellraiser series in the sense that, um, mm -hmm. well, in the sense that these Cenobites are twisted uh, versions of humans that somehow reflect some kind of unfavorable aspect of themselves when they were human, because that's what Silent Hill does as a town, is that it kind of takes a person's life or their fears or whatever and regurgitates it back out into a nightmarish form. And, you know, you got a similar thing here, so I, I do wonder if there was some... With the Cenobites, that's not really the case, because Clive Barker, again, we're going for the extremes. You know, body uh, modification was becoming more of a thing in the 80s. So yeah. with, like, facial piercings and stuff, and, you know, 
that was becoming more main, I wouldn't say mainstream, but because it was still in the fringe elements of society. Like, think about the punk rock era. You know, you got people with the mohawks, they got like 8,000 piercings going up their white ear and stuff like that. That's what he was going for with the Cinnabites. They're, they're supposed to be like these extreme body modified yeah. things. And, and the fact that you can't really necessarily tell whether the Cinnabites are men or women. It goes along with that. Yeah, which, I mean, and well, what I liked about the different looks, um, which, again, it, it does beg the question when we get to the second one, where specifically when you see what they looked like when they were humans uh, in comparison to their Cenobite form, uh, you have to wonder, like, what's the cause and effect for certain certain ones of them? And, uh, like, I'm thinking of the, the Chattering Teeth one who looks like... Um, uh, what was it, Nemesis in Resident Evil 3? That that creature uh, looks a lot like that, I imagine. I think we're getting a little too deeply into it. I think it's well, just supposed to be like an extreme body-modified version. <laughs> well, well I, I bring it up just because the fat one, uh, the human form of him, he was fat uh, in life, and so it's almost like, well... And then the, the doctor in the second one, he is like this extremely twisted version of what he was there which is a medical sadist who is obsessed with the mind and with gaining this occult knowledge and everything and so he's got this brain sucker thing and it's like it definitely reflects some characterization of theirs in their human life at least that's what I got out of it and you know but I imagine it's probably some combination of those two yeah. things but yeah I mean it's oh. uh you, you see like obviously the overweight one you see the chattering teeth one without eyes really and it's like you know that that's some pretty out there designs for the time uh well why don't we get to uh favorite scenes and that way uh Jake can uh sign himself out uh unless you want to see for the for the second one even though he didn't see it but you can still offer insight. Mm -hmm. I'll probably will go after this. Although I just I just got a bit of insight. I just realized one of the movies I did see in high school that I hated is a movie directed by Clive Barker. So maybe that's interesting. You say, you say Nightbreed, you are not allowed in our house anymore. No, uh, I, I I saw Lord of Illusions and I did not. Oh, that one. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I can see it. I mean, I was okay with that movie because I love Scott Bakula, but okay, I can see it. Yeah. And granted, again, this was in high school and I was on a youth group, uh, a youth uh, group trip of all things, so you can imagine <laughs> that. And needless to say, some of the people in that group had different tastes. Um, <laughs> Dave, go ahead your outros. Alrighty. Oh. So we do favorite scenes, especially for Jake, because uh, he won't be here for the next. Yeah. At least Jake's favorite scene. <laughs> I'm not really sure that I had much to offer on that. <laughs> uh, but, well, one thing about this, it's not really a scene, but one thing that amused me to no end was one little bit of trivia. And I, I, I want to go ahead and insert this. And that was this this little thing on IMDb. It says, when Cloud Barker first showed this film to his mother, she cried tears of joy upon seeing her son's name in the opening credits. He leaned over and whispered that that would be the happiest she would be for the next two hours. <laughs> 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 
I, I thought you were going to say she cried tears of blood because I could buy that. I'm so happy she finally did a film. Okay, mom, yeah, you're never going to feel happy to give her a film. It's a little bit like with uh, Trey Parker's mom, mm-hmm. how uh, with uh, like the early episodes of South Park that she was like, oh, I don't, they're so cute. Why do they have to curse? And then uh, as the as the series went on and they got more you know famous and wealthy and everything, she's like, oh, I, I think uh, Cartman should say, hey, you fucking Jew, and it, it's like, mom, you know, and it's like, well, quite a quite a turn around there. My favorite scene was what I already mentioned, the floor bird, uh, bird scene, and I'll I'll see my outros in the next uh, episode. So. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've got to pee, so I'm just going to go. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do that. I'm going to set up a, a link for, uh, for the next show, uh, uh, people, so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll right, pass well, it on. I'm going to go ahead and drop out for, for right now, because I have to get to the bathroom before the next show. So you yeah, need like 10 uh, minutes. What is your YouTube channel name again? That's Kim He's saying he's going to outro for the next show, babe. Oh, All right. <laughs> So, I guess we're Dave signed well, off. Time. Actually, why don't you do your outro, Jay? Because you won't be here <laughs> okay. for the next one. Oh, I was just confused because Dave signed yeah. off. Too. Uh, <laughs> well, if we're still live, um, I am Kotobuki Jake. I am co host on Symptom Sin vs. the World, YouTube channel about physical media, and I'm sure he will tell you a great deal more about it after the next one. Um, and I. Yep, that's all I got tonight. I'll go ahead and leave y'all to it. (laughs) All I gotta say about that. (laughs) I'm trying to to think of, like, what my favorite scene of this film would have been. I mean, Mm -hmm. so many great ones. I mean, I I think... uh, I might say, just off the top of my head, I think I might say when Chrissy meets the Cenobites for the first time and we really get an Mm -hmm. idea of how it works to uh interact with these things like if you're not if you're just a normal person and you're not you know a thrill seeker or whatever and it's like you know they're, they're not above they're not above a negotiation and like it's not their preference but it's like you know that that's kind of nice you know that you're able to yeah. yeah it's like they're they're not above reason and it's like well hey that's refreshing you know you, you wouldn't get that out of jason you know that's for sure <laughs> I admit I did like that too. Although that was is, what it is, you could have dinner with Pinhead. Yeah, you could you could talk about you know the the stock market in Britain, or you could talk about you know <laughs> geopolitics and stuff. And oh, by the way, I stumbled upon your puzzle box, and I'd rather that you not make me suffer, so I'll make a deal with you. You know, yeah, I, I could imagine I could imagine you could have a nice cup of tea with Pinhead and the rest of the Cenobites. I'm not sure you'd want to get into politics because that can definitely get into some uh, areas of state of mind. <laughs> oh, most definitely. <laughs> they're they're probably abu- the Cenobites are probably abundantly familiar with quite a few congressmen. <laughs> All right, that is excellent. Now you can uh, take us off of the live. All right. <laughs> We will 
our own. Your culture will adapt to serve us. Resistance is futile. Where is everybody on? They're dead, Dave. Who is? Everybody, Dave. What, Captain Hollister? Everybody's dead, Dave. What, Todd Hunter? Everybody's dead, Dave. What, Selby? They're all dead. Everybody's dead, Dave. Peterson isn't, is he? Everybody is dead, Dave. Not Chen. Good, Bennett. Yes, Chen. Everybody. Everybody's dead, Dave. Rimmer. He's dead, Dave. Everybody is dead. Everybody is dead, Dave. <laughs> Wait. Are you trying to tell me everybody's dead? 